Hi, everyone. Thanks for joining me this week for this episode of the New Mexico In Focus podcast for June 27th, 2022. I'm your host, Lou DeVizio. I'm a senior producer at New Mexico PBS. I hope everyone's having a good start to their week. I certainly am. I had the opportunity to go out today um, for a field shoot, which we have uh, once in a while with our correspondent, Antonia Gonzalez, and two of our photographers. Um, We went to the Museum of Indian Arts and Culture Um, to see a preview of the exhibit here, now, and always. It's a permanent exhibit that has been around for 25 years, but it's constantly being restored and revamped and adapted. And we got to talk to a couple of the curators and see um, some of the really interesting artifacts, but also the narrative that they put behind it. And you know how these artifacts mesh in with the spirit of New Mexico and indigenous culture, um, all the pueblos, uh, Navajo Nation. It's it's really, really an interesting exhibit. Opening weekend for the exhibit is this weekend, July 2nd and July 3rd. If you don't have any plans over the holiday weekend, check it out. You won't be disappointed. It's, it's really an interesting thing. And we're going to have a piece on that coming up um, in not too long, in a couple weeks on New Mexico in Focus with a little bit of the backstory behind some of the specific pieces, um, some of the specific sections of the exhibit and the curators who worked to make it all happen. So keep an eye out for that. For now, let's turn to some of the headlines in New Mexico. Of course, the country is still scrambling after Friday morning's announcement from the Supreme Court overturning Roe v. Wade, allowing states to once again ban abortion. Governor Michelle Lujan Grisham has made it clear abortion access here in our state will not change. Today, she took it a step further, signing an executive order that bars cooperation with other states that might interfere with abortion access here. That order also serves as a formal declaration declining to carry out any future arrest warrants from other states that have to do with anti-abortion provisions. The order also keeps New Mexico state employees, most of them, from assisting other states in investigating or pursuing sanctions against local abortion providers. Of course, that executive order ties into the reality that we're likely going to see an influx of people looking for abortions from neighboring states like Texas and Oklahoma, where there are strict abortion bans. This is, of course, something we're following closely at New Mexico in focus, the legal aspects, the potential of that influx and how that would affect New Mexicans' access to abortion or similar procedures. Um, We're going to be following all of that. So stay with us as we move forward in the coming weeks ahead. Last week on the podcast, I brought you a conversation I had with Secretary of State Maggie Toulouse-Oliver about the election saga in Otero County. You may remember that's where three commissioners initially voted to deny the certification process in the primary election there. That eventually was changed. That's because the Secretary of State filed a lawsuit. The state Supreme Court quickly responded and ordered those commissioners to certify. Two of the three did. It passed. Coy Griffin, the lone dissenter, uh, his vote's on the record as a no still, defying that court order. We talked to the Secretary of State about that. You can go back and watch that on Friday's episode. Um, For now, though, let's toss things over to Gene Grant. He spoke with our line opinion panelists about their thoughts on this issue. Now let's get some reaction from the line. With us this week is attorney Laura Sanchez, always good to have her. Reporter at New Mexico Political Report, our man Andy Lyman is with us as well. 
And line regular Merritt Allen of Vox Optima Public Relations joins us as well. Thank you all. Now, we know this was all over a perceived distrust of election voting machines, despite the fact that the machines have been audited many times and proven to accurately count votes. Now, two of the three commissioners gave in to the Supreme Court's order to certify the election, but Commissioner Coy Griffin dissented, even while saying he had no evidence of problems or factual basis for questioning the results of the election. Now, Merritt, is this just a PR stunt timed around the January 6th hearings, possibly, or do these commissioners really think they're standing for their citizens? How are we supposed to perceive this from the outside looking in here? What I find so upsetting and what I suggest to anyone uh, uh, watching who's got concerns about the Dominion voting machines, every county before every election holds a public test of the voting machines mm -hmm. and anyone can go and examine the machines and run, uh, be part of the tests and examine the ballots and address any concerns then. And this is before early voting starts. Mm -hmm. This is the time to go and examine the process and raise your concerns. And if you have a complaint about the validity or the uh, uh, accuracy of uh, the system or the processes, this is the time to raise it. If you did not go to that public test, um, I think you need to sit down and shut up. Mm -hmm. uh, it's as simple as that. And so to wait until the uh, results are in um, and just decide, I don't have a good feeling about this because some guy told you something about uh, some gobbledygook about manipulating statistics, mm -hmm. um, you need to stand down. Yeah. It, it, it's as simple. It, it's as simple as that. And uh, I want to applaud uh, the Torrance County Commission, three Republicans also, who, despite uh, members of the public coming in and shouting at them to not certify the results, uh, resisted that pressure and voted unanimously to certify the results of their primary. Mm -hmm. Andy, I mentioned uh, two votes were yes, one was no. That was Coy Griffin. Let me read you an interesting quote from him. Uh, from Commissioner Griffin, quote, my vote to remain a no isn't based on any evidence. It isn't based on any facts. <laughs> it's only based on my own gut feeling, my own intuition, and that's all I need, end quote. Interesting. I, I, how are we supposed to feel as, as a constituent when you've got, you know, your, your elected commissioner saying, you know what, I just don't think this is right in my gut. How are folks supposed to, supposed to handle that? I, I can't speak for constituency sure. in, in Otero County. I'm, I'm not actually, I mean, I've obviously been there plenty of times. And I'm not, uh, you know, in the middle of it. Mm -hmm. uh, but what's interesting about what him saying that is, is shortly after he said that, uh, he sort of took aim at, at reporters and, and the quote media for calling it un, unsubstantiated claims of voter fraud. Mm -hmm. uh, he said, we've just substantiated it here. That's not a direct quote, but he said, look, we've substantiated it in Otero County right after he said that he doesn't actually have any facts or mm -hmm. or anything like that. And I think to sort of touch on a little bit of what Merritt was saying is that, you know, they had these concerns about the just the the general sense of the, the voting machines and how things work, not the specific outcome of that election. And, mm -hmm. and I think Merritt's right that there is a, a way to address those things early on instead of waiting until the last minute. Uh, and saying we're just going to hold up this election because we have some general concerns about how our elections are done. Right. You know, Laura, interestingly, of course, as we all know, uh, Mr. Griffin was sentenced to 14 days time served for his role in the January 6th insurrection. 
I, you know, there's no way for us to know, as, know this, as Andy just sort of mentioned, but seen as a hero or a criminal amongst his constituents? How, do, how does this go down over time when you think about an elected official, you know, taking this kind of a stance? Well, you know, I, I think that the people of Otero County, as, as a lot of people throughout New Mexico and rural areas, um, you know, they're, they're good salt of the earth people. Mm -hmm. I think they, they are, you know, well aware of, uh, you know, of upholding our laws and being good citizens and, and are proud to be Americans. And I think when you see some of the behavior that's come out of Mr. Griffin, um, they, I can't imagine that everybody just has sort of a, an immediate, yeah, absolutely, we're behind you kind of reaction. Mm -hmm. um, I would think that they could see also that some of this is clearly is being done for show. I mean, is trying to, you know, there, there must be some sort of 15 minutes of fame um, idea behind some of his actions because they're just so out there. You know, the, the comment that Andy just made about, um, you know, him saying about unsubstantiated, maybe he doesn't know what the word substantiated means, because <laughs> that's the only way I could square what, what he's saying there. Um, you know, it's really, it's disappointing and it's such a huge distraction um, from the issues that are going on right now um, that are affecting a lot of New Mexicans, people at the local level, people statewide. You know, that we still have a bad economy um, in a lot of places. There's job shortages. There's still people suffering with COVID. Mm -hmm. We've got a lot of real issues to deal with. And I think these kinds of actions take away from a lot of that. Um, and it's very frustrating. So I, I can't imagine that people are going to look at this um, later and th be prideful about, you know, have pride about what his actions have have been. I mean, Otero County has been all over the, the national news That's because right. of these actions. Yep. Um, and, you know, it's important that we all kind of take a deep breath and move forward. And I, I'm glad that um, Merritt brought up the, uh, and I love that you're so plain spoken, Merritt. <laughs> that's why I said, I love you. Because that's, mm -hmm. uh, you know, we have that reaction, but not everybody says it um, that way. And she did it very well. But, um, you know, Torrance County, I think it's important to recognize that there are plenty of, you know, both sides of the aisle, but there are plenty of Republicans that have um, certified the election and have faith in their um, local elected officials, folks that are in charge of the elections. They understand the process. They've been to those, um, you know, warehouses or wherever the counting is going on, and they have confidence enough to uphold what's being what's being done. Mm -hmm. And both sides of the aisle do this. You know, there's plenty of Democratic majority counties that have to do the same thing when the entire everybody gets elected as Republican. So this is about being part of a process, and and it's important to uphold the rule of law. And I feel like everything that has come out of uh, Coy Griffin has not upheld the rule of law. And that's just not the system we have here. If he's going to go with a gut reaction, you could pretty much justify everything, you know, a criminal sentence, the death penalty in a criminal case, you could justify, you know, lynching, uh, racism, all kinds of things because of a gut reaction, right? Mm -hmm. That's crazy. And that's not the system that we have. And I'm glad we don't. He shouldn't be trying to pull us back into, you know, places that we don't want to go back to. Good point there. You know, Merritt, uh, Laura mentioned something interesting in Otero County. The clerk there was a Republican. You know, Robin Holmes, the quote from her was, this was a great election with no problems whatsoever. Why didn't that carry any water in, in, in the county? Having a Republican clerk saying everything's fine here. And I don't think there are any elected Democrats in Otero County. So, uh, right, Trump exactly. Carried, Trump <laughs> carried the county in 2020 by 28 points. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, the desired result from this, of, and, the, you know, that, that county commission also voted that the general election shall not have voting machines and it shall be a, a hand count. Right. 
of, of uh, the ballots. That's the desired result. I'd like to point out if their concern is voter fraud, the greatest risk to election integrity in New Mexico is mishandling, misappropriation, misuse of absentee ballots. Mm -hmm. A hand count by poll workers will not weed out fraudulent absentee ballots. They will be read and counted just like a machine would. Mm -hmm. um, we've had a conviction in 2019 in Rio Arriba County for fraudulent absentee ballots. I'm quite concerned in Grant County where the voter rolls and voter participation rates are so high. I, that's something I really think the Secretary of State and county officials need to be looking into. 92% voter registration isn't right. And uh, I think the, just the voter rolls need to be purged. There's something mm. not right in Grant County. This, if you are concerned about election integrity in New Mexico, is where you need to turn your attention, not voting machines. Gotcha. And sure. so this is really truly tilting at a windmill because a hand count is not going to eliminate um, fraudulent absentee ballots. Mm -hmm. They will be counted by hand just as they would by a machine. Good point there. You know, Andy, the previously mentioned uh, Torrance County had their issues uh, with the Sandoval County as well. You know, protesters, geared uh, commissioners there as well. Again, how do we pull this back to have folks understand that, you know, distrust, you're part of the ferment of distrust here when you walk into these meetings and start jeering commissioners for doing the right thing. Is there is there a way to fight back that goes beyond going on Rachel Maddow, you know, and, and arguing your case on national television? Um, I think it's it's hard. If there is a way to do it, I don't know mm -hmm. how to uh, sort of sort of I guess as you'd say, change hearts and minds. Um, mm -hmm. I, I think some of, a lot of these people truly believe. I think they've been. Um, you know, so ingrained in, in sort of their theories and diving, you know, of course, confirmation bias that all that stuff plays into uh, these ideas that people have. And they're truly convinced that that there's something there. Right. And so I don't really know how you you get people to sort of take a step back and sort of think about things a little bit more logically and clearly and maybe take in some more facts. Mm -hmm. um, I think part of the other problem, too, is is it's not they're not articulating very clearly if they have anything to say about the Dominion machines, right? I, I, I think Coy Griffin said he wanted to get in and look at the machines or, or have an auditor do it. But I don't know who knows what it's supposed to look like Thank in there you. besides having a modem. Yes. Um, yep. And so get I an think auditor did a public test. That's right. That's <laughs> yeah, there, there's definitely right ways to do it, as Merritt has mentioned. Um, I, I don't know how you sort of shift people's focus on mm -hmm. this and, and get them to, to stop being concerned about, or at least sort of uh, come to it at a different angle. I'm not sure how that's done. Fair enough. It, it's a hard thing. The fever's got to break somehow, some way. So we'll see it as time goes on. Maybe that's part of the answer. Thanks to Gene and the panelists for that conversation. We're going to be checking in with them again with another conversation, this one about a police shooting in Chavez County where the attorney general is now looking into it. That's after the district attorney there referred the case to the attorney general's office because of a conflict of interest. That conflict is unknown. Uh, but the reason this is significant is A, of course, the attorney general's investigation, but B, there are two pending lawsuits against Chavez County commissioners and the Law Enforcement Academy of New Mexico. That's to do with a police shooting from June 2021, where a 25-year-old unarmed man was shot and killed by uh, sheriff's deputies. 
Gene has more background on both of those cases and some of the implications as those investigations move forward. That discussion is going to happen in about 10 minutes here on the podcast. First, this is an interview that Laura Paskus, executive producer of Our Land, uh, did with Jason Kasuga. He's the chief engineer of the Middle Rio Grande Conservancy District, and he oversees water flow, water access in that area, all of the infrastructure. It was a very interesting interview. This was earlier this month, before monsoon rains started. Uh, but he has a much wider looking perspective on where water totals could be and how this persistent years-long drought will affect us even as we see rain falling. If farmers were to say lose their crops or orchards this year due to a lack of water, what sorts of resources, like are we, are we already at the point where we need to be talking about what people need to do this year? Yeah, well, I think the uh, resources that, w that we have in terms of um, helping folks right now um, uh, are limited in terms of can we pay them if they lose their crop. Um, I'm hoping that folks who are um, investing in crops are, are going through the um, appropriate analysis to determine um, crop insurance and those kinds of things. I do think that that um, could be a topic of conversation um, as we get into the next legislative session. Uh, one thing I think that you're aware of is at the last 30-day session there was a um, about 15 million dollars uh, given to the Middle Rio Grande Valley um, to um, have a temporary um, following program uh, which I, I think is um, going to be useful and I, I know and this is a hot topic of conversation among farmers. You know farmers want to farm, right? That's who they are, that's what their livelihood is and um, so there is an idea out there I think that we, we want to, um, that if, if we fallow land then it'll just stay fallow forever. And I don't think that's the intent of the program. The intent of that program is I think to give options to farmers and I think my hope would be if people consider a program like that, especially in 2023, 2024, and 2025, they would be able to use that money, invest in their farm, make, uh, make some efficiency improvements and or invest in some drought um, infrastructure uh, that would allow them to continue to do what they love. Um, but my job at the district as the CEO and chief engineer, I think, is to provide options to farmers. Um, uh, the following program is optional. Uh, but I think that's what we have on the table right now. I think that uh, there's other things that can be visited, uh, but I think those are the programs that we have on the table right now, um, along with, I think, some of MRGC's internal conservation programs to help farmers with on-farm on efficiency improvements. Mm -hmm. So we touched a little bit on infrastructure. Um, farmers in Corrales have had a, a particularly hard year. Um, I won't even try to describe how the siphon works, <laughs> um, but can you can you just kind of lay out what what problems are related to the siphon and that infrastructure um, issue, and what problems are related to simply a lack of water in the river in the system? Yeah, so the Corrales community faces and has faced an ex an exceptionally difficult year on top of having drought, right? And the reason for that is a key piece of infrastructure, as you, meant, as you mentioned, called the Corrales Siphon. And the simplest way to explain it is that it is an underground pipeline that is underneath the Rio Grande. And it allows us to transport water from the east side of the Rio Grande to the west. 
and allows us to transport a, a pretty decent volume of water. That piece of infrastructure um, is, is broken and needs rehabilitation. And so MRGCD um, deployed a, a pumping operation this season to try to provide some water, knowing that we were gonna deliver significantly less than what the siphon could bring underneath the Rio Grande from the east to the west side and deliver to farmers. And so I will say the whole valley faces drought in terms of the length and the availability and the time that we may have water, but Corrales is also facing an infrastructure issue which limits our ability to deliver um, volume to them uh, while we have water. And that is um, something that we're very much aware of, that I'm very much aware of, uh, that solution is going forward, but um, we're probably approaching a time where those pumps won't be operational. The river, um, we, may be we may be diverting water and delivering to other farmers, um, but the river, the river will have dropped so low that we can't pump out of it anymore. And that's why I say I think Corrales' um, situation is, ex is exceptional and we're taking every step that we can um, to fix that piece of infrastructure as soon as we can. Uh, but my expectation is, is there will be a um, pumping operation next year as well. Um, hopefully that won't be diesel driven. It'll be um, electric, electrical pump driven. Uh, that will allow us to provide a little more surety of water and more continuous operation. Diesel pumps require a, a lot of attention. Um, these pumps are also a stone's throw away uh, from the Bosque, so we have to be careful uh, knowing the fire, fire danger that we have. And so the, the, it is, I want to be honest, and, and when I talk to the Corrales community or anybody, I, I, I meet them where they are, and I acknowledge that they face an exceptionally difficult year this year and another one next year. And um, it's hard to hear that. It's hard to see um, farmers and, and see the struggles that they're going through. Um, but I do believe the district's doing the best job we can with the resources that we have and the process we need to go through to get that fixed. And at the end of the day, um, that's another project, Laura, that I'm, I'm probably gonna have to go seek state or federal funding because I expect when we, we, get, we get a price tag after we're done doing our engineering analysis, that's going to be larger than what we can generate at the district all by ourselves. So I think we're going to be looking for support from the state and the federal government potentially. Mm -hmm. Um, for the construction project. Right, so I wanted to touch on rain a little bit. We're all hoping that it'll rain. Um, forecast certainly in the next week here doesn't look great, very hot and dry. Um, when and if, when it rains, um, my understanding is that the ditches won't just immediately fill and everything will be efficient right away. Can you talk about sort of the, the fairness issue that I've heard you talk about um, and also about how the ditches, um, you know, work when they've been dry and then there is water? Yeah, so Laura, I think one of the things to um, remember, because when I, when I talk about rain for the Middle Valley, I also talk about um, an abundance. We need quite a bit of rain because we need, when it rains, we need it to make it to the river. Mm -hmm. And I think that's the first challenge with rain right now is if it rains in our tributaries, um, our, the soil conditions there are so dry that I think um, the amount of water that actually makes it to the river will be impacted by that, obviously. So one, we need, we, we need a good amount of rain. And then if it makes it to the river and we're able to divert it. Uh, one of the things that, that we're struggling with at the district and that 
that we are worried about is if these canals sit dry for a long period of time, um, there's always losses when you kind of recharge a canal, right? The, the canal is no longer wet, it's now soil and, and earth that wants to take a portion of this water as well. While the canals sit empty, um, what moisture is left is often taken up by vegetation that wants to grow. So now trying to keep that vegetation under order. A, a large part of our vegetation ma management, especially below the flow line, is dealt with by the water itself in that nothing grows if it's, drowned, if it's being drowned by the water. Mm -hmm. And so, and then the last piece of that is if we have enough water to divert and begin to deliver, um, some of our systems are extremely long. The district, I think, has approximately 1,200 miles worth of um, canals, laterals, and drains, and most of that is earthen. Very little of that is concrete. And so the further you get away from the point of diversion, the harder it is for the district that, to be able to deliver a sustained volume of water to reach farmers um, further down the system. And so I do think that um, there may, there's going to be instances where we have a shot of water. We're diverting it and we're delivering it and not everybody may benefit from there because of just the sheer distance water has to move. And I know that's a fairness issue, and, but I think the, the only way I can really explain that is the, uh, some properties are easier to irrigate um, because they're closer to the point of where irrigation is. The further you get away from the diversions, the longer the water has to run in a canal. And unfortunately, that's a reality in a system as long as MRGCDs. <laughs> Thank you again, Laura and Mr. Kasuga for that. We definitely will be keeping an eye on water totals and water levels through the Rio Grande uh, as we keep moving through monsoon season. Now back to that situation in Chavez County. Here's line host Gene Grant with some background on that and a further discussion with our line opinion panel. Let's welcome back our line opinion panelists for one final discussion this week. The Attorney General's Office has opened an investigation to, into a police shooting in Chavez County. It happened March 22nd. Here's how it went down. Deputies were called to a dairy where 34-year-old David Aguilera was apparently trying to steal tractors. Deputies tried to subdue him with a taser. They eventually got him into the back of the patrol vehicle, but he slipped free of the handcuffs and climbed into the driver's seat of the vehicle. In police body cam footage, deputies can be heard ordering him to get out of the car Mr. Aguilera apologizes but refuses. A deputy then opens fire when the vehicle appears to roll forward and Mr. Aguilera died from his wounds. Let's start broadly here, Laura. As an attorney, what are your reactions to this case when you hear this? Again, the details are just what's reported here, but your initial gut reaction, I'm, I'm curious. Well, I mean, I think anytime there's a police-involved shooting, it is, um, you know, it, it's terrible. It's terrible for the family of the victim. Um, mm -hmm. in case it's terrible for the for the officers that are involved. Um, it's never their first, um, I think, desire to open fire on anybody. Mm -hmm. um, so it's important to take a step back and and make sure that there is a, a impartial third party doing an investigation. So in this case, I think it's important to point out that the the local district attorney um, in Travis County actually asked the attorney general to step in and do the investigation mm -hmm. because there was a conflict of interest. She felt there was a conflict of interest there. And I think it's important that um, that district attorneys do that when there is a potential conflict of interest in investigating law enforcement. Um, that way you get an impartial third party to come in and actually look at it, and not have any kind of potential conflicts and, and issues that would cloud their judgment when it comes to reviewing the facts. So um, I, 
I think that, you know, the early reports are, there's definitely confusion about why was the vehicle rolling? Mm -hmm. What exactly yeah. was occurring? You know, was he handcuffed? Was he restrained in some other way? Um, all of these things are going to play into um, the fact pattern here and why it was necessary to open fire. I mean, I think it's important that, you know, I don't think officers ever, that's not ever their first um, approach. Uh, if they've got the right training, definitely. I mean, right. that's not, they're not going to just immediately go for their weapon unless there's some um, impending immediate threat. And so, uh, you know, if it turns out that there was a mistake made, a, a lapse in judgment that caused this, then obviously there's a need to have a, a lot more training uh, when it comes to dealing with um, suspects in this case, because, you know, what, what he was being accused of, um, I mean, property damage, property crimes are still crimes, mm -hmm. um, but there didn't appear to be an imminent threat to life at that point. But we don't know what occurred once he was in custody or what the facts were that led to this. Um, but again, very, very sad situation, I think, for the county um, and important for us to uh, wait until there's an adequate investigation done. Good points there. Uh, Andy, not the first controversial police shooting in Chavez County recently. Of course, deputies shot and killed an unarmed 25-year-old man in June of last year, and deputies say it appeared he was reaching for an object in his waistband, but there was none. And now the family of Oscar Nujera is suing commissioners for wrong, wrongful death. And I want to ask about this. Mental health appears to be a factor. His sister says he suffered from a traumatic brain injury and was not a threat to the deputies. You know, is there, some, is there a thread here we're seeing when it comes to law enforcement and, of course, uh, mental health issues and how training sort of factors into all these things? Uh, yeah, well, I think a big factor, and and that obviously that comes up a lot. But you throw in the mix a, a sort of smaller town police force, mm -hmm. whether that's the county or the city or both. Um, not necessarily the best comparison, but I've noticed that you know when you go to public meetings in some of these smaller communities, uh, it's pretty clear that they don't understand what the Open Meetings Act is or how to abide by it. Same thing with records requests, right? So you sort of live. Mm -hmm. uh, outside of the bubble of the metropolitan areas of New Mexico. And sometimes these things go unchecked and maybe there's not, uh, you know, not somebody there saying, hey, we should really uh, think forward on this and, and make sure that we have this crisis team. Um, because, you know, I don't, maybe those small towns don't feel like they they need that. And then of course, something like this happens in uh, hindsight 2020. Mm -hmm. Merritt, this one, I just, I gotta get into this. Another accusation highlighted in the lawsuit contends the Chavez County Sheriff, quote, enthusiastically hires known problem cops from other departments, end quotes. And the deputy in question had a previous complaint of, of excessive force. How concerning is that, in, in, is that accusation on its own right there? Uh, it's very concerning uh, and perhaps something that will come up in an upcoming uh, sheriff's election. Mm. But building a little bit on Andy's point, mm -hmm. that's the challenge we have with rural law enforcement. We have a limited pool of uh, people willing to go into law enforcement in the state. And, uh, you know, uh, the highest salaries are offered by state police, mm -hmm. then state corrections, then APD. Then I would guess Santa Fe, Las Cruces uh, fall in there somewhere, maybe Los Alamos. And then everyone else, you know, is the rural uh, department in roughly the same salary competing for uh, the same workers. Mm -hmm. uh, these officers are not well paid. The demands are high because uh, there's... Uh, the smaller a force you have, the more shifts, the fewer days off, 
the more coverage you have to provide, the stress is higher, the pay is less, the training is less. There simply are not the resources for things you would expect out of APD, for things you would expect out of uh, uh, Las Cruces, the things that the state police are able to do. So to Andy, to Andy's point, there's uh, not just a lower level of sophistication, there's simply fewer resources to go around. Fair enough. So they will not have had the resiliency training. They will not have had the training to deal with uh, mental health, uh, mental health issues. And there, uh, there's more overtime. There are fewer days off, and then you have uh, perhaps uh, a culture, uh, maybe a cowboy culture, where you've got a, a sheriff who says we're the baddest guys in town, mm-hmm. and uh, if he, he's looking for people who aren't afraid uh, to get into the fight, as it were, that only exacerbates the, uh, the problem. Mm-hmm. Laura, interestingly, May 2020, um, one of the officers now used to be with Roswell, now with this force we're talking about, Ricardo Delgado. He was investigated for dragging a handcuffed woman out of his police car by her hair, slamming her face into the pavement and kneeling on her neck for three minutes, and the Roswell Police Department at the time found the incident was, quote, a clear example of how officers should not conduct themselves. You know, is there any traction in the state about hiring problem officers going from departments to departments? Have we had any movement on that in in our state? You mean movement to prevent that? Yes, Mm -hmm. ma'am. Not that I've seen in a concerted effort, but I'm sure that it's been talked about um, at the legislature by various parties. I, I think that it's important to recognize, though, you know, these rural communities are so different from what we see day to day in places like Albuquerque. And it's funny to hear Andy call it, you know, these small towns, because if you live in the southeast part of the state, Roswell is the biggest city down there. Good point. So, you know, it is not to us, it's a small town, but to people in Dexter, Hagerman, Artesia, um, Roswell is where you go, you know, to, to Sam's Club, because that's the only place in town or in that region you can go to Sam's Club. So, I mean, it's, They've got some big, it may be smaller in population, but they have some big city problems in Roswell. There's definitely a a crime issue. There's a drug, there's drug problems, there's property crime, there's violent crime. Um, And so I think it's important for us to recognize there's a lot more resources that need to be, um, that need to be pulled in for some of these rural communities. Mm -hmm. And training is a very important part of it, but it's, you know, it isn't just a small town issue. If you look at uh, what was in the news not too long ago in Las Cruces, where there was a uh, a, an elderly lady who had dementia that was um, shot on her porch um, after not responding to officers' requests to put a knife down. Um, the lady had dementia, and as somebody who you know had to deal with my mom ha- who had dementia and had good days and bad days, as anybody who's dealt with that issue, you know there has to be a lot more training um, for people that are in a crisis situation. And um, there's just so many limitations, not just in personnel, the way That's that. Right. Um, that uh, Merritt talked about, but just in terms of getting the right information into people's hands when yep. they're on the front line. In a timely manner. A lot more funding needs to go into that. That's right. Hey, thanks again to our line panel as always this week. Be sure to let us know what you think about any of the topics our line covered on our Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram pages. Thank you all for joining us for this episode of the New Mexico in Focus podcast. Thank you for our guests and our correspondents. I know it's early in the week, but hopefully you see that holiday uh, lingering just a few days ahead. There's plenty to do out there. The forest restrictions have been lifted at most of the national forests. So get out there, enjoy the outdoors. 
check out the East Mountains if you have time, and just enjoy everything that New Mexico has to offer.